Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! I think that from the shoeshine box to now, God gave me this opportunity to be an example for the children. From there, we can be a Pele, and we will have many Pele's, if it's God's will here in Brazil. Brazil declares three days of national mourning to mark the death of the global soccer icon Pele. At the age of 82, we'll look at his life and legacy with Professor Brenda Elsie, co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down, and editor of Football and the Boundaries of History. Then to New York, where Democrats look likely to defeat Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul's nomination of the next chief judge to the state's highest court after his conservative judicial record prompted opposition from progressives because of his anti-abortion, anti-labor and anti-bail reform positions. This nomination was baffling to me that the governor would attempt to cement a conservative majority on our highest court uh, up until 2030 with a judge who has a record of making anti-abortion decisions. And as 2022 comes to a close, we look at one of the most alarming developments this year, how more jails in the United States have become death traps. Then to the new documentary, Angola, Do You Hear Us? Voices from a Plantation Prison. It's just been shortlisted for an Academy Award. We'll speak with the director and the film's subject, actress and playwright, Lisa Jesse Peterson. Man, we need help. I've been to 35 prisons across the country, but this I knew was historical. To be on a prison plantation, not just to perform, but to activate. Everybody clung on to every word that she said. I'm telling you, that place erupted. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel sworn in the most far-right government in 74-year history, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who begins an unprecedented sixth term as prime minister. The new government includes the ultra-nationalist and ultra-Orthodox parties that are calling openly for the annexation of the West Bank. A document listing the new government's policies includes a pledge to build settlements and occupied Palestinian lands. It reads, quote, the Jewish people has an exclusive and inalienable right to all parts of the land of Israel, unquote. In the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority said Israel's new government poses an existential threat to the Palestinian people. This is Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shdeya. 
We passed through many extremist governments, but this government is the most extremist. This government is the most threatening. This government is the most insolent. And I know for a fact that the international community will not deal with many members of this government. Therefore, to us, we are against all the governments that practice killing and oppression on our people. President Biden's congratulated Benjamin Netanyahu on his return to power, saying he looks forward to working with Israel's new government. In a statement released Thursday, Biden referred to Netanyahu as his friend for decades, adding, quote, the United States will continue to support the two-state solution and to oppose policies that endanger its viability or contradict our mutual interests and values, unquote. Biden's statement did not mention Israel's illegal settlements and ignored concerns over the new government's far-right, ultra-religious and ultra-nationalist members. The United Nations has halted some of its humanitarian aid operations in Afghanistan after the Taliban imposed a ban on female workers at non-governmental organizations. The UN's humanitarian aid coordinator in Afghanistan, Ramiz Alakbarov, said Thursday the ban has immediate life-threatening consequences for all Afghans. The humanitarian needs of the people are absolutely enormous, and it's important that we continue uh, to stay and deliver. As we do so, it's equally important uh, that the rights of women and girls, uh, of which we are so much talking these days, are absolutely preserved and protected. Ukraine's military says it shot down a swarm of 16 drones launched by Russia overnight against targets in Kyiv. The latest attack on Ukraine's capital came after Russia launched one of its heaviest waves of missile strikes of the 10-month-old war. This is a 79-year-old Kyiv resident who narrowly escaped injury after his home was destroyed Thursday. I have no words for what to call it. As they say, war is war, and things happen. But this is not war. It's a crime against humanity. In Moscow, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said military leaders are looking at attacking railway lines, bridges and tunnels across Ukraine in an effort to cut off the flow of weapons and ammunition sent by Ukraine's allies. This comes as Belarus summoned the Ukrainian ambassador on Thursday and demanded Kyiv carry out a full investigation after a Ukrainian air defense missile crashed in a field in Belarus. Belarus is a staunch ally of Russia and has allowed its territory to be used as a staging ground for Russian attacks on Ukraine. The incident has heightened fears that Belarus could be drawn into a direct conflict with Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin said he expects Chinese President Xi Jinping to visit Moscow in the spring during a video conference today between the two heads of state. In Italy, the far-right government of Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney is cracking down on charity vessels that rescue asylum seekers at sea. Among other things, a new decree seeks to prevent the ships from carrying out multiple unplanned rescues during a single mission. Charities violating the new rules could be fined and their ships impounded. Over 100,000 asylum seekers have disembarked in Italy over the past year, according to government data. Brazil's president-elect, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, finalized his cabinet appointments Thursday ahead of his January 1st inauguration. Amazon rainforest defender Goldman Prize winner Marina Silva was chosen as Brazil's environmental minister. She held the post in Lula's previous two terms in office, during which Amazon deforestation slowed significantly. Indigenous land and water defender Sonia Guajajara was named Brazil's first-ever minister for indigenous peoples. Lula also nominated black activist, journalist and educator Aniele Franco as Brazil's new minister of racial equality.
She's the sister of Marielle Franco, who was a human rights and racial justice ad activist, member of Rio de Janeiro City Council before she was assassinated in 2018. Ahead of Lula's swearing-in Sunday, the Brazilian Supreme Court temporarily banned registered gun owners from carrying their firearms in the capital, Brasilia, until after the inauguration ceremony. The move comes amidst rising concerns of violence from the far right and supporters of defeated President Jair Bolsonaro. Brazilian police on Thursday arrested at least four people and carried out nationwide raids as they investigated an alleged coup attempt led by backers of Bolsonaro who've refused to accept Lula's victory. Bolsonaro has yet to concede. Brazil has begun three days of mourning over the death of the Brazilian soccer legend Pelé known as the king of football. Pele died Thursday in Sao Paulo due to complications from colon cancer and COVID-19. He was 82 years old. Born Edson Aranches do Nascimento, Pele is the only soccer player to have won three World Cup tournaments, the first in 1958 when Pele rose to international fame at the age of 17. Brazil declared him a national treasure. Pele also won 10 league titles with his club Santos and is credited with popularizing soccer in the United States when he played for the New York Cosmos in the 70s. Pele was born in the Brazilian state of Minas Gerais in 1940. Brazil's incoming president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, said on Twitter, quote, few Brazilians took the name of our country as far as he did. We'll have more on Pele's life and legacy after headlines. South Korea has carried out military drills after it failed to intercept North Korean drones that crossed into its airspace Monday. This is South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol. The intrusion of North Korean drones in our airspace is an intolerable act. Many people are worried and concerned. We should let North Korea learn that provocations are always met by harsh consequences. South Korea will require travelers arriving from China to submit a negative COVID-19 test amidst China's worsening surge. This comes after India, Italy, Taiwan and the United States also impose new testing requirements on travelers from China. But health authorities say such measures do little to stop the spread of COVID and critics say the travel restrictions are being used as a diplomatic weapon and could further fuel anti-Asian hate. And here in New York, the first legal recreational cannabis dispensary opened its doors to the public Thursday at 4.20 p.m. The Housing Works Cannabis Company Dispensary in Manhattan is run by a nonprofit serving people living with HIV-AIDS, as well as unhoused and formerly incarcerated people. Chris Alexander, the executive director of New York State's newly formed Office of Cannabis Management, was the dispensary's first-ever customer. One of the key priorities was always, you know, addressing the criminal consequences that exist, uh, stem from marijuana prohibition and its disproportionate enforcement, but also access, right? And access to a plant uh, that is medicine for so many, particularly in the HIV and AIDS community as well. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Brazil's outgoing president, Jair Bolsonaro, has declared three days of national mourning to mark the death of the global soccer icon known as Pelé. He was 82 years old. Born Edson Aranches do Nascimento, Pelé was an Afro-Brazilian star in a country where Afro-Brazilians have long faced discrimination and racism. He grew up poor in the Brazilian state of Minas Gerais, where he famously played barefoot soccer with a ball made of rags stuffed into a sock. 
He was just 17 years old when he led Brazil to its first World Cup title in 1958, becoming the youngest player to score in a World Cup, and ultimately won two more titles with Brazil. Three World Cup titles, more than any other player in history. This is Pele explaining how he got his nickname. I fight in college with the, the kids because, no, my name is Edson, they call me Pelé. I got two days suspended in the school. Then everybody in school, all the kids start to call me Pelé. I hate that time. <laughs> <laughs> Today I love, of course. Now I love because, uh, I don't know, God gave it to me. Short name, easy to pronounce it, any language you can remember, Pelé. Because uh, my name is Edson Arantes do Nascimento. This is hard to remember, no? Only <laughs> And then, uh, today, I love Pelé. Pelé was seen as a symbol of Brazil. He played for 20 years in the country before retiring. He then toured the world to popularize soccer. Pelé was also known for embodying the commercialization of soccer. He faced criticism for being seen as complying with Brazil's repressive dictatorship. The nation's Miguel Salazar wrote, that when Brazil's military seized power in a 1964 coup, quote, Pele kept his mouth shut and the dictatorship allowed him to play as he pleased. Eventually, Pele crossed a line. He agreed to a formal meeting ahead of the 1970 World Cup with Emilio Girastazu Medici, one of the most ruthless members of the authoritarian regime. Pele later became a cabinet member in the Brazilian government in the early 90s. For more on Pele's life and legacy, we're joined by Dr. Brenda Elsie, professor at Hofstra University, where she co-directs the Latin American and Caribbean Studies program, also co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down, co-author of Futbolera, Women, Sports and Sexuality in Latin America, editor of the book Football and the Boundaries of History. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Professor. It's great to have you with us. Thank Three days of mourning me. have been declared in Brazil. Um, Pele is a global sports figure, a soccer icon. Talk about his history, where he was born. Talk about where he grew up and his significance. It's going to be a very difficult—it is very difficult to imagine soccer or football without Pelé. And it's very difficult to think about Brazil's image and the way it projects it to the world— he has really, you know, he became iconic mid-20th century. He has been sort of identified so closely with this sport. He grew up in a very poor uh, family as an Afro-Brazilian. He also faced a lot of racism uh, throughout his life. He is emblematic of an Afro-Brazilian soccer tradition that you know today as Jogo Bonito or the Beautiful Game. He had just this sort of um, amazing, energetic, dynamic, graceful, intelligent game that excited the passions of so many people. And, you know, what he meant to Brazil was, as you said, very contradictory, sometimes politically, you know, really, really complicated person to be that famous for so long and to embody you know, that that much of a national identity comes with these kinds of sometimes painful contradictions. And the significance of an Afro-Brazilian in the 1960s becoming a global superstar, what this meant for Brazil's most marginalized? I mean, it, it, it was incredibly important that the person that was identified with absolute excellence, both on the field, but he also became a metaphor for being the best ever 
large, you know, largely more broadly than just uh, soccer and to say just soccer in Brazil feels weird. But um, he became Im important and to symbolize being the best at something, to say you are the number 10, to say you are the Pele. And the fact that the best of that was an Afro-Brazilian, was, was a black man, was incredibly important. And that was solidified for him by 1958. And it wasn't just important in Brazil, but when he toured, you know, Africa in the late 1960s, Mozambique, Nigeria, it was really important in fostering a sense of, of trans, of transnational black excellence. And, I mean, when he was just 17 years old, he was the youngest in so many ways. Talk about the racism he faced. Yeah, I, I mean, you just spoke at the top of the show about the first ever cabinet position of racial equality. And uh, so you can see that the ongoing legacy of racism in Brazil is far from being resolved. And in 1958, though there was not formal uh, segregation, as there was in baseball in the United States, for example, um, there's informal segregation and deep racism that, you know, created huge economic inequalities and discrimination. And Pelé would have faced all of that. In fact, um, when you said he was identified as a national treasure, he was legally um, given a special category that made it impossible for him to play abroad. He was sort of codified as a, a heritage or national patrimony by the government, by a government degree, decree. This would not have happened with a white player. Uh, and it prevented Pelé's labor, uh, you know, to move in terms of his labor. So he faced a, a number of, 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 of points of discrimination in his career that are impossible to ignore, despite, as you said, being the face of the commercialization and commodification of soccer. And then the relationship with the dictatorship, the 1964 coup and beyond. Yeah, I, I mean, he he has a number of really, as I said, contradictory positions throughout his life. And he is, he, you know, he, it, it's hard because he spoke of himself almost in the third person a lot of times. Uh, when I met him in 2014, he came to a conference at Hofstra in which we were very critical of the World Cup in in 2014, in which we discussed the military dictatorship and the way in which uh, the national football team, the national soccer team had supported or had a relationship. And, you know, his response was that he was against authoritarianism and against the military in very broad terms. He did support the movement of some of the Brazilian um, soccer players to have the vote come back in the mid-1980s. But, of course, you know, people were disappointed and will continue to be that he didn't do more, uh, particularly in the early years, to express his, you know, to express opposition to the Brazilian dictatorship. And that that will be part of, I think, the way that he's remembered and, and something that was painful for a lot of people that hope differently. And here you have three days of mourning leading into the inauguration once again of Lula um, and the relationship between Lula and Pele. 
You know, um, again, towards a, in the last 20, 25 years, Pelé spoke in very general terms. And again, people being disappointed that he didn't say more about um, Bolsonaro and about the far right and the growth of the far right in Brazil. So very generally and broadly, he would talk about love and peace and uh, call for love and peace. But there wasn't you know, much specifically that people were looking for in terms of being against Bolsonaro. He is a uniting figure in Brazil in a lot of ways, one that, you know, both the right and left will embrace as, you know, standing in for something about Brazilian identity. I will I will say that he is not um, his image and the image of Brazilian football has not been entirely captured uh, by the right. But that is a struggle. It is a site of struggle for people um, every day. And finally, um, just before we leave you as a sports expert that you are, can you talk about Roberto Clemente and his significance to the world of sports? Tomorrow will be the 50th anniversary of his tragic death. In a crash, a plane crash on the way to Nicaragua to deliver supplies there in 1972. Yeah, Roberto Clemente really is an emblem. Everything that you uh, indicated that people were disappointed with in terms of Pelé, uh, you might find in Roberto Clemente, uh, who both was very active in civil rights, very active in Puerto Rican rights and solidarity um, with Central America, particularly after the earthquake, as you mentioned, in Nicaragua. So, um, you know, both of these, though, being both of these men are very important icons and very important to mobilize people into into thinking about sports as a platform for racial justice. We want to thank you so much, Dr. Brenda Elsie, professor at Hofstra University, co-director of the Latin American and Caribbean Studies program, co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. Next up to New York, where Democrats look likely to defeat the Democratic governor's nomination of the next chief judge to the state's highest court. Stay with us. Me deram violão E fizeram eu cantar Eu Todo desajeitado Cantando tudo errado Sem saber como parar Mechamal by Pele and Elise Regina here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman as we turn to a remarkable development here in New York, where for the first time, Democrats look likely to defeat 
The Democratic governor, Kathy Hochul's nomination of the next chief judge to the state's highest court. If confirmed, Hector LaSalle would be the first uh, Latino chief judge of the Court of Appeals of New York. But his conservative judicial record has been opposed by progressives because of his anti-abortion, anti-labor and anti-bail reform positions. On Thursday, two more state senators came forward to oppose LaSalle's nomination, bringing the total on record to 12, meaning he cannot be approved without Republican support, which makes it unlikely Democrats will bring his nomination to a vote. Those opposed now include the Senate deputy leader, Democrat Mike Gennaris. On Wednesday, Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I spoke to one of the first state senators to oppose LaSalle's nomination, Jabari Brisport, New York State senator in Brooklyn, who's a Democratic socialist. I asked him to describe how the governor chooses who to nominate for a chief justice and why he opposes LaSalle. Well, good morning, Amy. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, the process in New York works like this. There is a commission on judicial nominations. Uh, they take uh, recommendations, applications over a several-week period, whenever they have an opening, and then they make a short list of seven that they give to the governor, who picks one to send to the Senate for confirmation. So in the short list of seven, I would say there were three really outstanding candidates and three unacceptable ones, one of them being Hector LaSalle, who uh, is unacceptable for the reasons you've listed uh, previously as making anti-labor decisions, anti-abortion decisions, and honestly branding as not even a conservative judge, but a conservative activist judge going out of his way to make these decisions. And could you be a little more specific on some of those decisions that he's made that, uh, uh, that uh, draw the uh, ire and the concern of progressive groups? Yeah, sure. So in his anti-abortion decision, there was a crisis pregnancy center in New York City that was misleading women seeking abortions and then went under investigation uh, for uh, legally practicing medicine. And during their investigation, uh, Hector LaSalle helped author a decision that shielded them from the full investigation by the attorney general. He basically made the case that they did not need to give um, or share what their marketing materials were, the things they were using to, to dupe women. He, he said that sharing those marketing materials would be a violation of their First Amendment rights somehow. Uh, in terms of anti-labor decisions, there was a case where a, an employer, Cablevision, was suing union leaders. And even though that's illegal in New York, Hector LaSalle went out of his way to say that even if the employer could not sue them as union leaders, he could sue them as individuals, um, basically exploding and rolling out the red carpet to a loophole to sue labor leaders. And that's why five uh, labor unions have also come out against Hector LaSalle, in addition to the 10 senators who have as well. Now, in terms of uh, his um, his confirmation process, uh, uh, Democrats have an overwhelming majority in this in the state Senate. What would it take uh, to block his confirmation? He would need 32 yes votes to be confirmed by the state Senate. So currently there are 10 of the uh, 42 uh, Democratic senators who have come out opposing it. If, if one single more is opposing him, then he will not have enough votes from the Democratic conference to be confirmed. So what's going to happen now? Um, and talk about, I mean, uh, you know, it was a very close race between Lee Zeldin and, um, and Governor Hochul. Um, 
one of their main differences was reproductive rights, was the issue of abortion. And, you know, he was fiercely anti-abortion, and she said she was extremely pro-choice. Can you talk about what that means um, when a chief justice um, has the position that he has, what kind of cases he presides over? And did this nomination surprise you? This nomination was baffling to me that the governor would attempt to cement a conservative majority on our highest court uh, up until 2030 with a judge who has a record of making anti-abortion decisions. And again, he has gone out of his way. When you have someone willfully misinterpreting the Constitution to the point where they're saying an anti-abortion, you know, crisis pregnancy center does not need to share what, you know, lying, deceitful marketing materials they're using, um, that's a problem uh, for me. And... We have a situation here in New York where we have an opportunity to shift the highest court in a progressive uh, direction, and the governor is completely fumbling that opportunity. Can you talk about bail reform, uh, State Senator Burstport? Yes. Uh, in 2019, uh, New York State enacted changes to the bail laws that allowed for more uh, less restrictive measures to allow more people to wait at home for their trial rather than waiting at um, our detention facility in New York City, uh, Rikers, in pretrial detention. And it was a strong success in terms of um, more equality of people staying at home and waiting uh, home uh, for their, their fair trial. But due to conservative backlash and blaming everything under the sun on the laws, uh, it suffered rollbacks uh, immediately after in 2020 and again this year in 2022. And conservatives continue to weaponize it and lie about the facts of bill reform in order to get rollbacks and force more people to be incarcerated. And, and what is your sense of, of uh, why Governor Hochul took this decision, what kind of pressure she was under? After all, if she wanted to name a, a, uh, a, a, the first Latino to the uh, to uh, chief justice, she could have named Jenny Rivera, who uh, came out of the uh, Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund and is already on the, on the court, uh, but uh, she chose instead this far more conservative uh, pick. Yeah, I would say two things. One, uh, one, it is just the outspoken uh, identity politics angle of confirming the first Latino. In terms of Jenny Rivera, she is fantastic. However, she was not on the seven-person shortlist provided by the Commission on Judicial Nominations, so she was not an option for the governor to choose. Uh, and, you know, the unspoken one, aside from the identity politics, is that the governor consistently shies away from making bold, progressive decisions. That, that's also why she did so poorly against an election-denying, Trump-supported fascist running against her uh, for the governorship just a few uh, weeks ago, is that she refused to make—to distinguish herself with a strong, progressive tact. Hector LaSalle was a prosecutor in Suffolk County, New York. You tweeted, it's indefensible to ask for black votes and then work to incarcerate us. No on LaSalle, you said. Explain. There are zero judges with a uh, defense background on the court, and that was a problem when we voted to confirm Madeline Singus uh, over a year ago. Um, I voted no on her. I voted no again on uh, you know, Troutman early this year. And we have 
an extremely lopsided fact that the Court of Appeals is um, dominated by prosecutors and people that issue, you know, pro-landlord decisions um, and and pro-business decisions. And nominating yet another prosecutor to our highest court would maintain that imbalance. Jabari Brisport, New York State senator in Brooklyn, a Democratic Socialist. We spoke to him Wednesday before more Democrats said they would vote against the confirmation of Hector LaSalle, reaching 12, meaning he can't be approved without Republican support, which makes it unlikely Democrats will bring his nomination to a vote, challenging the choice of the Democratic governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the Warren and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Well, as 2022 comes to a close, we look now at one of the most alarming developments this year, how more jails in the United States are becoming death traps, where people face inhumane conditions and overcrowded facilities. New data show New York City jails are the deadliest in more than a quarter of a century. 19 people died in city custody or shortly after being released, and severe understaffing at the notorious Rikers Island jails has been linked to several suicides, as officials are now predicting the population to balloon in coming years, even as the city faces a mandate to shut Rikers down by 2027. Meanwhile, in DeKalb, Georgia, officials report two people died from hanging this week in less than 24 hours, making this the deadliest year in the jail's history. In Houston, Texas, the Harris County Jail has seen a record 27 deaths this year. It's been under a non-compliance status since September. That's where we begin now, to look at this underreported crisis. For more, we're joined by Krish Gundu, Texas Jail Project co-founder and executive director, which aims to be an unofficial citizen's jail oversight commission throughout Texas, has been raising alarm about the crisis in Houston. Also with us, Carrie Blakinger, investigative reporter based in Texas, covering jails and prisons for the Marshall Project. She's moving on to the Los Angeles Times. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Krish, let's begin with you. Why are in-custody deaths surging? In Texas jails. I mean, let's be very clear here. Jail is where people go more often than not before they have been convicted of anything. And they are dying in jail, either by suicide or by maltreatment. Not clear. Tell us what's happening. Good morning, Amy. Yes, um, you're absolutely right uh, to point out that jails are places where people are held pre-trial. That means they've not been convicted. They're legally innocent. Um, and it's become a death sentence for a lot of folks in, in Texas county jails. As of yesterday, we had 161 custody deaths in Texas county jails. Um, that's about 240 jails in the in, spread across 254 counties. And in Harris County uh, jail, that has that number is actually officially they say 27. But we know that there were 28 deaths because um, people are being given a PR bond as they are dying in the hospital so that they don't have to be counted. So actually, we've had 28 deaths that we know about. And the reason for that is severe overcrowding. And the overcrowding is being determined by a really small group of prosecutors and local judges who handle felony cases. 
which is in stark contrast to reforms enacted by misdemeanor judges that have dramatically reduced incarceration and reduced crime and improved public safety. But the officials responsible for felonies have rejected overwhelming evidence um, to expand pretrial releases, and they've pursued policies of greater pretrial detention, which is why we're seeing the system collapsing under its own weight. We hear about systemic um, medical neglect, medical abuse, uh, just the whole system is just collapsing under its own weight. So even as we speak overnight, you've been getting more information. Describe the situation of people who have died in jail. Yeah, so just to give you an idea of some of the some of the um, tragic and completely preventable deaths, that's one thing I would like to underscore is that these are absolutely preventable deaths. So, twenty-four-year-old um, young man went into the jail with his insulin shots, and he told the staff that he was diabetic and he needed his insulin. Uh, four days later, he's dead because of diabetic ketoacidosis, because he didn't get his insulin. Uh, the first death this year, this year was uh, Simon Peter Douglas, um, who came into the jail in, in, a, in acute psychiatric crisis, um, tried to hang himself, and they put him in a padded cell, and he managed to beat his head so um, badly against the walls and the metal grate on the floor that he eventually died, which is abject medical neglect. I mean, these are absolutely preventable deaths. Another death that I was reading an autopsy report on yesterday of a uh, 38-year-old woman with diabetes, she died because of complications from a fungal infection. So all these were just completely preventable deaths. Three of them were suicides. Four of them were people with severe mental illness who were found incompetent to stand trial. And these are custodial deaths. Um, so then, so these people are under the direct supervision, surveillance, and care of the sheriff's staff. And so when, so they are responsible for their life and death. And when people die under direct surveillance and supervision, it just erodes the public's trust in these systems. I mean, if I can't trust the sheriff to keep people in his own custody safe, how can we expect him to keep people in the community safe? So we're talking about the Harris County Jail, where, of course, Houston is. What about mental illness? Nearly 80 percent of people admitted to the jail are recorded likely to be suffering from a mental illness, according to the jail's own data. Yes, you're absolutely right. So Harris County Jail is actually the largest confiner of people with mental illness in the state of Texas. In fact, the top three out of the top five facilities with psychiatric populations are county jails which should tell us something about our priorities as a society, you know, where we're in investing our, our, our resources. We're investing them in punitive systems. So um, this is a trend across the state. In, in many of the county jails, there's, there's a growing number of the population that is people with mental illness. And in Harris County, that's over 80 percent. And you add that, um, you know, you add this overcrowding issue to the fact that we are also having this decade-long mental health crisis in the state where we've underfunded the mental health system. So we have over 2,500 people who are sitting in county jails awaiting competency restoration. So they've been found incompetent to stand trial. They're awaiting competency restoration. That's over 2,500 as of last week. Um, and in fact, four of the people who died, our community members who died this year in Harris County Jail, were severely mentally ill and found incompetent to stand trial. So they were one of the most vulnerable folks in the jail. Finally, how is the overcrowding in the jails 
um, link to the backlash against bail reform and a vote that was just taken in Harris County? I think it's directly connected to the backlash against bail reform. So the reason why we're here today in Harris County and in the state of Texas is, an, is a completely self-inflicted crisis. So when Harris County went through misdemeanor bail reform, which I might say was hugely successful, the latest uh, report that came out of the Cartron Center is very clear about how successful misdemeanor bail reform was. Uh, but, this, but there was this backlash against the misdemeanor bail reform. They did not want it to spread to the rest of the state. And so um, combine that with at the beginning of COVID, there was this huge um, ask in, um, from public health experts to decarcerate jails because, as we know from all the evidence out there, that communities with big jails was where the most um, COVID spread was happening. And so there was this ask for depopulating jails, and the response by Governor Abbott to that ask was his executive order, GA-13, which limited releases of people from jail. So um, they couldn't be given PR bonds anymore. And um, after that, there was the George Floyd protests, and a lot of people were getting bailed out by charitable bail funds. And so between that and the ask for depopulation, um, we had SB6 pass into law in this last legislative session, which was basically the codifying of GA13. And what SB6 did is that it um, there was a blanket denial of people um, uh, to give PR bonds to people on a wide range of charges. So it was uh, sold as, as as bail reform, but it was it wasn't really bail reform because what it did was it further entrenched cash bail into the equation. So for charges you might have gotten cash bail for um, a PR bond for earlier, now you had to pay cash to get out. So people who are unable to pay cash um, are stuck in jail, and those are mostly poor folks and black and brown folks mostly. So that has led to, uh, uh, directly led to uh, skyrocketing pretrial populations across the state. And that's a result of the you know, backlash on the bail reform. Well, Krish Gundu, was... I want to thank you for being with us, head of Texas Jail Project. As we turn to Kerry Blakinger, investigative reporter based in Texas, covering jails and prisons for the Marshall Project as the media organization's first formerly incarcerated reporter. She's also author of the memoir Corrections in Inc., which details her experience serving time in prison uh, in upstate New York. Her most recent piece for the Marshall Project is headlined, Why Would Prisons Ban My Book? Absurdities Rule the System, after the state of Florida banned her memoir um, from um, the prisons. Uh, Carrie, it's great to have you back if you can talk about um, this larger—putting Texas into the larger picture from Rikers to Texas to where you're headed to work at the Los Angeles Times, uh, what's happening in Los Angeles as well. Yeah, I think that we're seeing a lot of the same things across the country. And I'm so glad that you had Krishan talking about Texas, because it feels like Rikers Island is the thing that everyone is so well aware of. So much of the media focus is often on Rikers Island because of the concentration of reporters and news outlets in New York. So I think anyone who sort of follows this is broadly aware that there's been this huge spike in deaths in Rikers. And we've obviously just heard about how that's true in Harris County as well this year. But we've seen the same sorts of things happening in jails across the country. Um, and on top of that, sometimes we have other layered concerns, like some of these facilities are deteriorating in a very extreme way. And you have the physical plant, the, like the physical facilities are in quite bad shape. And then you also have the overcrowding that Krish has mentioned. 
And some of that is sort of a rebound that we're seeing after COVID as, um, you know, as various states rescinded the measures in place that they had to reduce populations during COVID. Obviously, Chris has talked about how that worked out in Texas, but in California, there was at one point a zero bail order and that has been when that was rescinded, you immediately saw an increase in jail populations, particularly in Los Angeles, which, you know, has something like 13,000 people in their jails at this point. And their jails have been in extraordinarily bad shape. They've been under a consent decree since the 70s and have not managed to comply adequately in that entire time frame. And then, you know, you have COVID and the after effects of COVID. And that's a very dire situation going on there right now. Now, finally, um, I wanted to ask you about your book being banned. And you talk a lot about all these kinds of issues, Corrections and Inc., which we did an interview with you about um, on Democracy Now!, being banned in the prisons in the state of Florida and fit that into the Marshall Project's release of this database of books that have been banned from prisons spanning at least 18 states— Yeah, I'm so glad to talk about this. So about a year ago, actually, I started looking into this. I started collecting the banned book lists from every state that maintains a banned book list for its prison system. Turns out about half of states maintain banned book lists. But of those, only 18 sent us usable banned book lists because several of the states were messy data or sort of not relevant. But out of the 18 that we got, that includes about 54,000 titles total. Uh, we, we sorted out some of the magazines, so that's just looking at books. And there's definitely some absurd and concerning patterns that you see within that 54,000. Um, one of the big patterns is that a lot of the reasons that books are banned are just patently absurd. Like many books are banned for things like nudity when prisons have forced nudity. Like you have regular strip searches often in groups, and yet books are commonly banned for nudity, sometimes nudity of cartoon characters. Um, But there's many other reasons that are really absurd when you look at them. But one of the big takeaways is that these absurd reasons are often applied in a manner that seems pretty racially biased in several states. Not every state, but definitely some states. One of the sort of examples that stands out to me is Texas, where Mein Kampf is not banned, but Ida B. Wells' book on lynchings is banned for racial content. And there are several states that ban, you know, black abolition and black liberation authors for racially related reasons, which is, um, you know, extremely concerning, to say the least. But I mean, I think fundamentally, the reasons that we see these books banned sort of speak to their absurdity, especially in this day and age when so many people behind bars have contraband cell phones. When you ban books, all you're doing is keeping the well-behaved people from reading what they want, because the people who are already breaking the rules can get those materials through their contraband phones. Well, I want to thank you, Carrie Blankenship, for joining us, investigative reporter based in Texas, covering jails and prisons for the Marshall Project as the organization's first formerly incarcerated reporter. Um, we will link to your article, Why Would Prisons Ban My Book? Absurdities Rule the System. Uh, your book, of course, your memoir, Corrections in Ink. Next up, we look at the new documentary, Angola, Do You Hear Us? Voices from a Plantation Prison. It's just been shortlisted for an Oscar. Back in 30 seconds. I was standing by my window It was on a cold and cloudy day 
I said, when I saw the purse come rolling, oh, to carry my mother away, will a circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by Will the circle be unbroken by Mavis Staples? This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. As we end today's show, looking at the remarkable new short documentary that's been shortlisted for an Academy Award. It's called Angola, Do You Hear Us? Voices from a Plantation Prison. Angola was a plantation. Just because you see prison with your physical eyes, what do you see beyond that? Start questioning why do we send people to prison and who's actually here? My best friend, she said, You got a story to tell. Write that shit down. And I just put the rage on the page because I've had to do something. Man, we need help. I've been to 35 prisons across the country, but this I knew was historical. To be on a prison plantation, not just to perform, but to activate. Everybody clung on to every word that she said. I'm telling you, that place erupted. You jump-started our hearts and our minds. Here was some truth that somebody couldn't handle. For more, we're joined by Lisa Jesse Peterson, the actor and playwright featured in Angola, Do You Hear Us? Voices from a Plantation Prison, which was produced by MTV Documentary Films and by Cinque Northern artist, filmmaker and director of the Academy Award shortlisted documentary we're talking about today. Congratulations to both of you uh, on this honor. Um, Sinkway, why did you choose to make this film and focus on Angola, a prison we have talked about for so long, for example, where Albert Woodfox was um, incarcerated for so many decades? Um, thank you, Amy, and, and thank you for having us today. Um, you know, I've been following Lisa's work uh, since she was working at Rikers and had been wanting to do something to sort of elevate the work that she was doing with incarcerated populations as an artist. And <clears throat> obviously, when the opportunity came for Lisa to go to Angola, it just became so much bigger. Um, and initially, I had gone down there just really just to shoot the performance, Lisa's performance. It was more a shoot than it was a film at that point. Um, but once, once what happened in that room happened, then it became a much bigger story. And we saw Angola as a way of telling this singular story about this singular artist would, would have a way to really um, just be an example, you know, of what's going on really throughout the country. And specifically Angola, as the title of your film, part of it is this plantation prison, its history from its name to who is held there. 
Yeah. So a lot of people uh, I learned in the process of going there that um, the reason it's called Angola, it was formerly a plantation. And a lot of the enslaved people there were from Angola. And so when it became a prison and this is 18,000 acres of, of farmland, when it became a prison, it kept the nickname Angola. And so the link of that history, um, I think, is just very telling. So let's go back to your film, Angola, Do You Hear Us?, where we hear the words of men incarcerated Angola prison being read by others to protect their identity. He's holding that field, man. Because when that summer comes, people be falling out in that field. They take care of a horse before they take care of us, man. Seeing those white correctional officers on horseback with rifles, I mean, it just looks like something out of the antebellum South. Majority is all blacks in the field. At one time, man, the field line was 300 strong, and you had 10 white boys. So you know we got over 6,000 people here. They're warehousing us, bro. Here. I see that a lot of guys here, they, they broken. An excerpt of Angola, Do You Hear Us? And we also hear there Lisa Jesse Peterson. Lisa, tell us your story that is told so beautifully in this film, how you ended up in Angola and what happened. Yeah, um, thank you for having me, Amy. I had the opportunity to meet Norris Henderson, who's also um, featured in the documentary, um, and he and I are both um, grantees um, with um, Art for Justice, and they had a convening in 2019 um, where the um, all the grantees, artists and activists who are working to end mass incarceration, who are supported by Art for Justice, we all met. And... Um, Norris, who was formerly incarcerated at Angola, um, took us on a field trip. Basically, uh, we got on a bus and he took um, about 20 of us, <clears throat> excuse me, to visit Angola. And when he mentioned that there was a drama club at Angola, um, I got excited because uh, I wanted to perform my play, The Peculiar Patriot, at Angola. And so that's how I met Norris. But there was no way that I could have ever imagined that meeting Norris um, in New Orleans in 2019 would lead to um, what happened in 2020 in the chapel at Angola. What happened? Oh, <laughs> um, it was pretty stunning. Um, um, Norris has a an amazing relationship with the administration at um, Angola because he served over 27 years um, before he was released. And, and he still does work with the prison doing um, reentry work. And so he was able to facilitate with the administration permission for me to not only come to perform for the population, but to also film the production of The Peculiar Patriot. And we had permission, and literally um, 15 minutes before I was to go on stage, they told, <clears throat> excuse me, um, our film crew that we could not film, that we had to shut our cameras down um, for no reason. We had no idea what um, what the cause was, and um, and then uh, <laughs> I went on 
and performed without filming it. And halfway through the show, when I go backstage to get ready for the next scene, uh, Norris is backstage with a correctional officer standing behind him. And he tells me that there's been an emergency in the chapel and we have to end the show. And I just knew instinctively. I said, ah, yeah, Mm. there's something else going on. And let's be clear. It's not just that people were personally watching you and they canceled it for them. But this was on closed circuit TV throughout Angola. How many people do you estimate were watching at the point where it was shut down and why you think it was? Well, so it was interesting. The, um, you know, Angola has their own radio station. They have their own TV, closed circuit TV station. And so they had um, the incarcerated men um, who run the television um, station film the play so that it could be live streamed through the entire prison. And uh, I think approximately six or seven thousand men are incarcerated. So in the chapel, there were physically about 700 men or more um, packed into the chapel to watch it and then live stream throughout the entire prison. So they were able to see everything. They were even able to see the shutdown. So even though our cameras were not allowed, the live stream, so the men who were in the um, um, housing areas, they got to see the moment when it shut down and the, um, the, the raucous reaction um, that happened that followed afterwards. And I would say, um, and I get, I was told by the men who contacted me after the performance through their wives and through contraband phones or whatever means they had available, that the housing areas, that the day rooms were packed, that men were crowded around the televisions watching the performance. This has been amazing for you, Cinque Northern, as you um, film this performance. Um, and watching this short documentary, um, I hope there are no flies in the room when anyone watches, because your jaw drops. You might choke when the flies fly in. But Cinque, maybe in the same way that when you saw yourself, the film shortlisted for an Oscar, what are you hoping to do with this over these coming weeks? Um, well, I mean, we really want as many people to see it as, as possible. Um, we always had an idea that this film would create empathy and, and just to add to what Lisa said about what happened in that room, an important thing to remember is before it got shut down, those men were laughing, they were crying, they were so uh, captivated by these characters that Lisa had created Lisa wasn't just in there giving statistics. She really embodied these characters. And I think the interruption of that created this momentum that that kept going. Um, but as far as the film, I mean, we we're hoping to get nominated that that, you know, that would bring so much awareness, so much more awareness to this. And really, I hope would um, have people be unsettled with this reality and look further into it. And how people are able to watch this now all over? Uh, You can watch it now streaming on Paramount Plus. And Lisa Jesse Peterson, as we wrap up, what you want people to take away with you're the last guest of our year here at Democracy Now! Well, that's quite an honor. And I really hope that people will take away um, 
the humanity of people who are incarcerated and to not just um, know them as numbers or see uh, the statistics, but know that for every number, there's a human being connected to that number and there's a family and their family members. So I hope that this film will inspire and ignite um, compassion, empathy, and healing, and most importantly, reimagining um, how we deal with um, mass incarceration and to envision something different than what we have now. Well, Lisa Jesse Peterson, actor, playwright, and Cinque Northern, director of the short documentary Angola Do You Hear Us? Voices from a Plantation Prison, which has just been shortlisted for an Academy Award. You can watch it at Paramount Plus streaming. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Happy News Year.